Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We are here in the studio today getting ready to talk about EMDR and substance abuse, which is a huge area to talk about. We could probably tackle it in 45 minutes. Oh, yeah. I mean, sorry. Scratch the surface. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking this is like our origins, our therapy origins, our EMDR origins. origins. Yes, it is. uh, These are my, yours too, our first clients where we cut our EMDR teeth, which is a hell of a way to begin. Um, but it is for a lot of therapists, <laughs> the place where we begin because it's such a, a huge need. Mm. Um, and it certainly taught me a lot. And I hope that some of those early clients of mine are okay. I would like to make a public apology. <laughs> yeah, Just kidding. There were some mistakes made and I really did learn a lot. But uh, I think today, um, rather than trying to do a perfectly thorough job of going through all of the different uh, protocols that are out there for substance abuse, we're going to keep it a little bit more high level Mm. and talk conceptually together about uh, ways of working um, with substance abuse and EMDR, and then definitely giving specific mention to protocols that we find useful and uh, mm-hmm. that have a lot of research behind them that we would recommend to you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think even like just ways of conceptualizing substance abuse, like this was the population that motivated me to get trained in EMDR mm-hmm. because it was like, okay, working at a treatment center, these are all the things we're doing. Yeah. And it's like, totally not working <laughs> like, like yeah, we're like not, not even, even a touching bit. it mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. and um yeah when i sit down to run a consequence worksheet with my client mm-hmm. and they're looking at me like you have no idea like what why are we even doing this just realizing because my boss told me we have to that's right. why yeah <laughs> there's so much underlying this presentation that is not a matter of choice or yeah. control, or are you trying hard enough, or are you... Yeah. don't you understand the... Are you motivated yeah, enough? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My experience, because I haven't worked directly in a substance abuse like clinic or treatment setting, mine has just been with those that have presented with it in therapy, um, just in my private practice, but I have um, done a lot just with like conceptualizing the neurobiology of addictions. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited for this conversation just to get to... Um, hear from you both on your experience from where you started and also what the change in your conceptualization of substance abuse Mm -hmm. has been since then. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so I'm very excited. I think the other kind of greatest desire for me of this time is along the same theme that we approach every episode with is like the de-shaming of the presentation. And this is a presentation that seems to get so much shame 
culturally, yes. from our community. There's a black from, sheep. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And from like family members and loved ones that don't know what else to do and their yeah. last attempt to try to help is shame. And yeah. And so just really wanting to approach this topic from a de-shaming stance and de-shaming of the human behind it, de-shaming of how everyone's experiencing it. Uh, all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I do think that kind of the whole way through, it feels important to acknowledge that there are some addictions that are much more socially and culturally sanctioned than others. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about this, we will use a lot of examples that are from the uh, addictions and, um, you know, compulsive patterns that people deal with that tend to get a lot of cultural backlash. But that's because people that have the more socially acceptable addictions don't have to come to therapy as often because yeah. they're not getting as much pushback from family, from friends, from life, et cetera. They don't cost as much. That's right. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not, uh, number one, treatable. Uh, and number two, we do see those in therapy. And so kind of opening our awareness to um, remembering that there are a lot of behavioral patterns that have this addictive quality to them. Yes. That uh, as we talk about where we believe substance abuse and other addictions come from, that it's going to apply to those behaviors as well. Things mm -hmm. like, um, you know, America's favorite workaholism, you know, socially sanctioned can have real problems and uh, we can treat that. Um, and it comes from the same origin story as mm -hmm. an alcoholic, which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sugar. Sugar. <laughs> hey, I'll Jen. Just drop that lay one off. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm not talking about you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we can probably all resonate with that work and sugar. Work and sugar. Mm. Well, uh, hey, cheers, guys. <laughs> Coffee. Coffee. Yeah, here we are with a little caffeine. Yeah. And, uh, so but that's it's sugar-free creamer. <laughs> Does that My, Mine is not. Mine is sugared creamer. So. Your words to me, Jen, in receiving the cup were, tastes like dessert. <laughs> so. Okay, Bridger. Uh-huh. So <laughs> my point is, is that we have the privilege of laughing about our addictions because they're socially sanctioned ones. Exactly. And uh, there are uh, plenty that have like real life-threatening and tremendous costs to them. And so we don't want to make light of that, but we do want to highlight that there is uh, a list of addictions and compulsive behaviors that get a lot more um, shame than others. And we want to be conscious of that mm -hmm. in therapy so that we don't perpetuate those cultural patterns. Um, and that we don't overlook the uh, struggles that people have just because those would be socially um, positive ones. So things like uh, exercise addiction, mm -hmm. um, we would compliment somebody for losing 10 pounds and getting fit mm -hmm. and miss something essential. And so uh, I think that's a good frame as we move into this conversation. Yeah, I think for me as well, coming to the world of therapy was... Uh, somewhat of a culture shock experience when it came to substance uh, mm. abuse because for me growing up like where i grew up like <laughs> i mean you can you could call it substance abuse but that was not a part of the culture at all mm -hmm. like and mm -hmm. i remember it was just a saturday <laughs> or a tuesday or like because or I, monday morning i remember in, in even my undergrad um, learning about the DSM's designation mm -hmm. of like alcohol mm -hmm. abuse and looking at the um, like the number of drinks per day per yeah. week yeah. and just like well this is my entire family yes and yeah. they are all extremely functional people 
And so the level of impairment with this number of drinks per day, that doesn't Doesn't track. Yes. And so even then it was like this, like, oh, like, yeah, that's in my blood. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that's my, that's my whole family for generations and generations and not just with alcohol, like with all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it wasn't until I found the strategy reconceptualization of substance abuse that it really started to matter to me Um, because at first I thought it was just people that wanted to shame other people. And so they found a metric by which to justify Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Um, And institutions have a tendency to do that. And so Mm -hmm. I was just like, whatever, like if you're going to call my family addicts, I think that's a choice that you have. Mm -hmm. But for me, um, when I started talking about it in the way of strategy, that's when it really clicked. That's when I really started to see like, Oh, mm-hmm. this Even might matter. On yeah. the flip side of that, of the people, as you're saying, like wanting to shame other people, yeah. the strategy in that of an, a fear, an attempt to control, an attempt yeah. to protect from. And so the word strategy, I think, I mean, at this point, you listeners are probably very familiar with us using that. We're using it so frequently, but looking at the, the, uh, kind of the attraction to or the utilization of these substances is strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The response pattern to them, how we respond to them, how we feel about them is is strategy. Mm-hmm. And all of that mm-hmm. comes from like, how did we experience that? What are our you know understandings and experiences of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think one of the helpful things about reframing substance abuse that way is that we can begin to look at how substance abuse is a strategy that can meet multiple different needs. And it's not always the um, the usual story. Mm. You know, not every alcoholic drinks to numb their feelings. Some, what we would perceive as alcoholics from a DSM perspective, that is their strategy of social engagement and connection. Like this is how we do relationships mm-hmm. um, and numbing doesn't really factor into it. In fact, it's a, um, a way of feeling more <laughs> and uh, allowing more feeling to flow between people. And so I think that's the other shift is uh, being able to look at this isn't always what we were told it was going to be about. Yeah. The story is as complex as a human being. And so when we move into therapeutic relationship with someone around substance abuse, like being really curious about, okay, we know it's a strategy, but a strategy for what? Yeah. What is the the need that is getting met? Um, and what is the emotional learning that taught you yeah. to get your needs met in this way? Mm-hmm. Or that it wasn't acceptable to get them met in another way. Without it yeah. in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in that looking at strategy regardless of what it is we're kind of lumping substance use or you know compulsions of any sort like in that category Mm. if it if it's strategy Mm. we only need strategy when like Mm. when we are interpreting or perceiving a lack of safety or an attempt to receive connection with another person like that is when our systems employ strategy it's not from a like a conscious place that we're thinking like oh this will be a really good route and i can Mm -hmm. manipulate the situation into this it's very just like yeah deeply ingrained a response and even when it is a salve for not feeling safe it's likely not even a conscious choice in that regard Mm -hmm. of like i don't feel safe so i'm going to do this whatever it is it's just a this gives my body the physiological either 
lack of feeling or additional feeling mm-hmm. uh, that it needs to hold itself together in this moment. Yes. yes. It's not the equal like one-to-one, oh, if I drink a beer now, I'm protected in some right. way. Not at all. Right. But it's, and I think especially when you get into substance abuse, we're talking about chemicals mm-hmm. in the system. Like we are ingesting chemicals that are going to, you know, change the experience, the activation or the feeling. And so in that, if it's a felt sense of lack of safety or disconnection, it may not be this is how I'm going to get safe or find the connection. In fact, it might be the opposite, the avoidance of, mm-hmm. but it's a way to be able to tolerate the experience, the internal experience in right. those environments. Well, and I think the the concept of what fires together, wires together is yeah. also a huge yes. piece of this because um, sometimes when we you know, get in there and we're poking around in somebody's nervous system and uncovering the way all of this got built, um, it was simply the mere presence of that activity or that substance when the other thing was happening. Mm-hmm. And because they always or often happened simultaneously, they got wired together mm. and the body figured out like, oh, well, if I push that button, then this other thing also happens. Um, and so that that wiring gets ingrained and then the more they repeat that, the more ingrained it gets. And you know, we can get really, really far down the road um, where that entanglement is powerful, but the original um, moment of learning is long forgotten, not by the body, but long forgotten to consciousness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one case example that already just is like coming to my mind so strongly in this as we're talking, um, it, it, it is shows the complexity, I think, of why an addiction, uh, quote unquote, a single addiction is always contextualized mm-hmm. to the system larger than just that one issue. Mm-hmm. And this um, this case was a number of years ago, um, but it was uh, that alcohol helped um, numb the shame that kept this person from living the life that they wanted to in their expression of their sexual identity. Mm-hmm. And so the only pairing they had with expressing their authentic identity was with alcohol. Yeah. And then that wasn't enough. So we paired it with risk taking and Mm -hmm. then it was into this place of now an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And all of this was there to suppress the expression of this identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And that to me shows the strategy and the deliberate floundering that's happening in the system in trying to cover and trying to keep from expressing Mm -hmm. that really like just talking about it as a disordered label Mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense no no it must be contextualized when i feel like that's such a good example of so much of the time you know we conceptualize it as well they're addicted to that substance right they're addicted to that thing when in actuality no, the, the addiction is to the suppression or expression of something that they desire or do not desire. That's exactly it. And they the brilliance of our bodies means that, well, if alcohol quits working, then I'll move to something else. And when that quits working, then I'll move to something else. Yeah. And so it's not about the thing or the substance. Now, there is a chemical process that can start to occur. That and means the body- condition that yeah, over and yeah. over again. Yeah. Um, but the, the actual addiction separate from chemical dependency because we functionally see them, they function very, very differently um, in the body. You cannot become chemically dependent on gambling, and yet we see all the manifestations, and that's yeah. why there's now you know, inclusion of mm-hmm. uh, process addiction in the DSM, because clearly there is another mechanism happening there, and that's what you're describing, Bridger, is this 
compounding of it was never about the thing itself. Yeah. It was about uh, how I was using something, literally anything that I could find that would stop me from feeling this thing that I'm terrified of. Yeah. yeah. And that to me, I think that understanding is so helpful for even the treatment because yes. if you chase the thing, it's not going to do anything. No, we're that's whack-a-mole. Exactly. We're yeah. going to find another thing. Mm -hmm. And for them, it was like I came from a, you know, very evangelical home. Yeah. And therefore, who I truly feel I am is not allowed. Yeah. Yeah. And so I have to shame myself into being this perfect object all the time. And then alcohol is the only way that I found actual freedom. Mm -hmm. And that led to all these other kind of things that added to the experience of actually getting able to be myself yeah but it was in a way that was actually more toxic than it was healing and so it just led to more and more let's add this process mm -hmm. let's add this process let's when add this process like who they find themselves to be like with the support of alcohol then becomes the source of the shame or like the the target of the shame yes. now people are shaming for what their behaviors are while they're drinking or oh, that yeah. they are drinking or how often which if we're looking at that is just further perpetuating the core issue yeah, of i'm right. not okay as i am mm -hmm. and then that just continues to generalize into the need of either more drinking more frequent drinking or other behaviors yes. or you know we've now have you said eating disorder or other pieces like layering on top of that if we're just trying to manage the behavior and oftentimes managing it through shame approaches. Yep. We're going to further perpetuate the problem. Mm -hmm. Well, so when you were talking earlier um, about it's not the necessarily the substance they're addicted mm -hmm. to or, you know, that specific behavior, that's so true. I think so often, like with my clients in the past looking at, they would say these things like, I hate the drug. Yeah. Like, I despise it. There, there wouldn't be, there's not a desire or a, this choice of like, well, I choose that. I like it more than that. It's mm -hmm. like, I actually like, I hate that, but I cannot, um, almost the ritual around it, mm -hmm. the process mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've got extreme stories of clients that would, yeah, I won't tell them some of how horrific they were, but not even utilize the substance anymore, but they'd still go through the same ritual around it mm -hmm. and it would meet that same need yeah. in some way. And then the other layers too of hearing people say like, it's not really like, I don't hate who I am with that. I hate who I am without it. Yes. Like yes. I can't tolerate to be with me like mm -hmm. as I am. Mm -hmm. And so then this like layering of what does that substance or that behavior, how, what kind of protection does that bring around? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. there's so many pieces of it that if we're not addressing the core issue, if we're just coming from the top down and managing behavior or seeing it for what the behavior is telling us, we're going to miss the issue all the way mm -hmm. through. When I think, you know, well, I guess I like to think that nowadays that is a pretty well understood concept for therapists of, you know, you can't just manage the behavior and expect to be treating an addiction. It just doesn't work. Mm. Um, I hope that's common knowledge <laughs> therapeutically at this point. But what isn't um, is that when people are coming in or when families are sending family members for treatment, <laughs> that that understanding of the long road to healing, because it is so much more um, about that deeper work than it is about the behavioral management or just 
ending or stopping or suppressing the behavior. Uh, that is hardly what it's about mm -hmm. at all. And so sometimes the the tension that's experienced is not as the therapist saying, well, I just want to manage the behavior. It's actually the client wanting that mm -hmm. or their family wanting that um, because they, they don't know how to conceptualize addiction because we have these huge cultural stories around addiction um, that still perpetuate that idea that this is a, a behavioral problem and therefore could have a behavioral solution, mm -hmm. which it doesn't. Yeah. And I think there's so much hope in that, that, that it, it would have right. a behavioral solution yeah. that if we just change this, it's mm -hmm. going to fix the whole thing. Right. Um, but that to me is a severe kind of underreading of mm -hmm. what the human organism really is. Right. You know, what does it mean to be a complex system? Um, it means to take one stimuli and to then diversify the dependence of that and how it's utilized into multiple other presentations right. that you have, right. which together make up the person that you're committed to being in this moment, yeah. in this in this atmosphere, or in this climate. And I think that's where, you know, yes, I think the addictions can be really concerning and they can be life-threatening. Mm -hmm. But if we have a conceptualization that we just need to take that away from them, that to me is a very problematic conceptualization i mean yeah. yes mm -hmm. i think there it's a it's a tight rope <laughs> in so many ways from a treatment perspective mm. because there are things that we absolutely should be more rigid on with what we're wanting them to stop doing right or but i think the like the motivation and the framing mm -hmm. of those more rigid moments in our therapeutic work it's still not from that top-down suppress the behavior because that's the problem yes. perspective. It actually, and I, you know, I'm curious to hear how you guys would phrase this, but it has to do with what is the bare essentials that we need to do to get them safe enough so that they can do the work that is going to set them free. That's when I think, yeah, absolutely. And to me, where that isn't necessarily irresponsible is there are situations where it has to be yes. absolutely limited. it's dangerous. It's dangerous, yeah. whether well, yeah, it's to the individual, yeah. to the kids around them, to the to community at large. Yes. Yeah. But in that, what we can say is if that strategy is going to be cut off, whether they go into residential treatment and they literally don't get access to that substance anymore yeah. while they're in there. If it's going to be cut off, we have to be okay with knowing that other strategies have to come in place to fill in the gap. Mm -hmm. Like that is going to be there, but we are going to be working with and addressing the core issue in that. And the other strategies can be acceptable. Right. And that can be what the system is needing to how do I even survive if I don't have that one thing I've been going to mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to need these other strategies. Yeah. I uh, started my practicum experience um, at a mission. Um, yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, working with... Um, Is that where your office was in a real closet, like an actual broom cupboard? Yeah, well, <laughs> a, yeah, a utility closet. <laughs> there we go, yeah. There was uh, half full mop buckets, yeah. toilet paper rolls, and... Yeah. I just uh, love that picture of you sitting uh -huh. in a mop cupboard uh -huh. with a client. Yep. Do you actually have a picture or just the visual? No, I, I, like, I, I need to see this. Mind. No, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we're laughing and I want us to come back to this oh, okay, laughing okay, because sorry. what I'm about to tell you is pretty rough. tough. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, a moment of levity before. Yes. Yeah. But it's just so, I mean, one of the most difficult experiences in that environment besides the instability of, of service delivery, mm -hmm. like it was hit or miss if they were going to show up. Yeah. 
But the work that we were doing was even just trying to increase their overall ability to participate meaningfully in the program that they were mm. in, in the treatment program. And one of the individuals was was trading, like was in the process of trading one addiction to cutting mm. for meth. <laughs> like that was, it was like, which one do you want me to do? Because I'm doing one of them. And that that ended that relationship ended without me knowing like which direction they would go because mm-hmm. I came back the next week, which is typical for that space. Yeah. Worked for gone. two months with him yeah. and then he was gone mm-hmm. after getting to that place. But that to me just shows this, like it's, it's about needing to understand what the system is really doing yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. Endorphin for endorphin. What do you want to do? Yeah. yeah. I must have something. I can't yeah. do this. Yeah. My yeah. like, and he said, the voices start if I don't do one of these, yep. what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's just like the, mm-hmm. man, uh, can I just, let's get you into it. Like, you know, just like all of these like desires mm-hmm. to just yeah. like, let's get you out of the situation yes. that you're in. Let's get you into this like really loving and nurturing place and yeah. just be able to like completely Can we detox. wave a magic wand yes. and take you to utopia so that you can heal? Yeah. Cause I can't imagine that mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. balancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that like that story feels normal in the world of substance abuse treatment. Yeah. Like that that is every day. And like there's a part of me that wants to acknowledge for therapists that are still, you know, in that world and doing that day in and day out like holy crap. That's like, wild. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I did it for four and a half years and was 32 years old with high blood pressure and my mm-hmm. doctor telling me you have to stop and that's why <laughs> yeah because that's the reality this profound feeling of um helplessness and impossibility just yeah. the the paradox of the situations that we find ourselves in with clients it you know is is heart-wrenching yeah. to I say remember the least telling my supervisor that story of like mm-hmm. what was going on with this case and they said they, you know they just reflect the feeling mm-hmm. but they were like yeah I mean, that's the world. So yeah. what else you got going on? Yeah. Like it was just like there. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What other cases do you want to talk about today? Mm-hmm. And the toughest piece of all of it, it just is so like so much grief coming up in me is that is the reality. I know. For some of them, mm-hmm. many, many people. Yeah. Of it's, I, have, I mean, the number of times I experience like i have to be high on meth to take care of my kids yes do you want me to like not otherwise i'm debilitated with depression in my bed mm-hmm. can't get out they won't get food they won't have anything mm-hmm. but so if i get high want me to feed my kids right, i'll yeah. go get a job i'll have some money there for him i'll do you know i'll do all these things like mm-hmm. the alternative like yeah. it's it's dark it's a really dark place to sink mm-hmm. into and really consider it's not hopeless but it's dark mm-hmm. not hopeless but it's dark yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh man, this is so heavy. <clears throat> well, mm-hmm. I guess in in summary of that one point. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that so wasn't one on point. The bullet point. No, no, that's on our agenda. Um, in summary of that one point, whether or not we're we're considering harm reduction or mm-hmm. um, crisis management or this behavior management that's good enough for safety like 
we have to keep our eye on the felt sense of safety throughout. Like yeah. that is what the individual mm-hmm. is needing. And that doesn't just mean, I mean, yes, it means like actual physical safety. Like, oh, are you being like threatened in your home right now? It's going to be really hard to treat your substance right. abuse if you are. Yep. But also like their felt sense of safety in the world. Am mm-hmm. I safe to be who I am? Am I safe to be in relationship with another person? Like those experiences that we can do some of that like – you know, step-by-step work that is encouraged in treatment centers. But if we've got our eye on that objective while mm-hmm. we do it, mm-hmm. it's a very different experience. Yeah. I I will say often it's about doing top-down work with a bottom-up perspective, yes. a bottom-up therapist. Yeah. yeah. And so we can, those of you that are listening that work in treatment centers or work with substance abuse and you're saying, I have to do these things, or we do need to manage the behavior, like things in their world are falling apart if we don't be able to approach it from a top-down way of managing mm-hmm. behavior and shifting cognition, but show up as bottom-up with yeah. them, mm-hmm. experience that with them, be connecting back to that felt sense of safety and and seeing them as a human behind all their strategies and showing a sense of like positive regard and acceptance for that human mm-hmm. and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, I just have like so many humans at this point that I'm thinking about over the years. Like it's impossible to not sit here and be Rolodexing through previous clients and everything that they taught me. Um, But I think the number one thing that is kind of standing out as you're talking, Jen, is when we do it that way, like even in those awful conversations that we're having that feel more top down where we're talking about like, how are we going to keep you from drinking this week? Mm -hmm. Because if you do it again, you're going to jail, Mm -hmm. you know, like how many different conversations did I have that went exactly along those lines? I think having that bottom up perspective and having done the groundwork with the client to really lay that foundation of this is a strategy that I have tremendous, um, heartfelt understanding for how you find yourself in this predicament. Like this makes sense Mm -hmm. to me. When we have that established in the relationship, when we have to move into those harm reduction and management conversations, it's not uh, shaming. It has much more of this feeling of like, can I come alongside you and fight this demon with you? Like, how Mm -hmm. can we, how can we approach this and uh, um, have you feel like you have somebody that is working with you and conceptualizing this with you to find something that's going to help. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if we have to, you know, say things that feel like tough love, you know, one of the phrases that get, gets used a lot to explain this way of working, which I have kind of a love hate relationship with that phrase, because I think it gets misused. But if we're having those kinds of conversations from this grounded place of, I truly don't feel any shame towards you or feel like you should be ashamed of this because I understand the how and the why Mm. and empathize with it greatly. Um, Our clients can feel that Mm -hmm. they can sense the difference and uh, it makes a a huge amount of difference in the way that those conversations are received. Um, And in my experience actually helps with the harm reduction. Mm. And uh, um, because we don't trigger the other strategies of things like isolation and rebellion and, mm-hmm. and the furthering into shame and the spiraling that can occur in that place. But yeah, it's a very uh, challenging kind of tightrope to walk mm-hmm. of how do I 
push you, but then also hold you lovingly in this space. Um, yeah. I a little soapbox of mine. I'm just as you're you saying right that, I love get, get on that tough love soapbox, Jen. <laughs> no, that's I love so much hearing you say like I I get I see why you do it. it makes sense to me. Yes. Because everyone else in their world says this makes no sense. Oh yeah. Don't you see? Don't you yeah. understand? Don't you see how, how irrational yes. this yes. is? Yes. Oh. Talk about no. a consequence <laughs> worksheet. It's basically like laying out this list that says, Oh, wait, I think you were too dumb. To get yep. it the first time. Right. So when I write it down on a paper now, suddenly Right, if we put it in black it. and white, it's going to click for you that this is just a stupid choice you're making. And once Cost you see that, you'll be able to do... Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Once you see <laughs> that, those. you'll be able to make a different choice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so if you can just see it, then and if I can just help you and give you that favor of like showing it to you on paper, mm-hmm. then you'll stop doing it. Mm-hmm. And there is something to like bringing, I mean, we, we say it all the time, like with awareness comes choice, like there's aspects of that, like we can bring pieces of the consequences into awareness. Right. Insight, that, yeah. Insight into that. So I'm I'm on a soapbox. I'm not really shaming anyone who does consequence work. <laughs> no, it's mostly but, that those tend to get imposed on us as yes. a thing that we have to do. Or new or therapists the are told to this do is, before yeah. they can move on yeah, to anything yeah. else. Also, take this paper into court and wave it in front of a judge. Yeah, that's yes. therapeutic. But for anyway. someone to look at you and say, it makes complete sense. Maybe not cognitively and right. rationally. Rationally, yeah, maybe it doesn't make a ton of sense as to like, you are spending this amount of money and, mm-hmm. you know, like whatever those things are. But from like, your my body feels like it makes sense. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to feel that either. Mm-hmm. Or I wouldn't know how to do, if I had, you know, that experience, I wouldn't know how to connect with people mm-hmm. either. Right. Like being able to like find where does it make sense because mm-hmm. it would not be present if it didn't. Right. It just wouldn't be there. Fundamentally. Well, yeah. Yes. And I feel like any human being alive can find some spot in their life where they make profoundly irrational decisions that are emotionally incredibly rational. Mm-hmm. Like that—that that is not. We don't have to hunt very hard yeah. um, most of the time to find those. And I mean, an easy one is like nobody makes their bed in the morning. Well, maybe you do. No. Okay. Hey. Okay. <laughs> That's a whole conversation. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> there are some humans in the world that make their beds. It's not me. No. Okay. Good. So see my bedroom. <laughs> but like. All of us know that supposedly you feel better and you sleep supposedly. better if you make your bed, right? Like this is like a common knowledge thing, but none of I us do great. it. I sleep great. So I'm just saying that like even even small embodied experiences of I know better supposedly, but still behave other than what my knowledge gives me. Like if you feel into that for a minute, emotional logic is still very logical. There is a very clear train of rationality that brings us to that conclusion over and over. Um, And so being able to track that in our own selves, it's not very difficult to track the emotional rationality, the mammalian rationality behind uh, severe addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And doing that with a client is way more impactful than explaining to them why this is not cognitively logical and rational. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in all of our work with substance abuse, let's, I want to draw the connection now of like EMDR. Like we've got yeah. the conceptual understanding of it. It, it needs to be the spiral approach. This is a, a way that we reference, you know, working um, not in just this linear way with in our trainings, we talk about this, but the spiral approach of we are always balancing symptom reduction, managing 
the addiction while also going in deeper and saying, what's the core issue? Yeah. It's a back and forth. We don't just check the box of the symptoms been reduced. We've managed the behavior and now we do the work underneath. And we don't just only do the work without considering the way that the symptom is presenting. Mm-hmm. So it's just constantly we're circling back over and over and kind of checking in and tending to both throughout the entire treatment process. Yeah. yeah and I, for me, the sort of origin of substance abuse is a systemic issue like psychodynamically that's kind of how i'm oriented as a as a psychotherapist and so looking at how this makes sense as we've talked about it right now but also even just to include like one of the subpopulations of this conversation being adult children of alcoholics yeah like that to me just reveals that though they may not themselves have a substance abuse um issue they have a internal working model of the world mm-hmm. that is riddled with the effects of the strategies mm-hmm. of substance abuse. Yeah. And so their their prediction making mechanisms mm-hmm. in their mind of how the current situation will unfold, what is a threat in the current situation, yeah. all of that has been shaped throughout the lifetime. Yeah. Um, one of the cases that's sticking out to me is that every time uh, this person's mother would pick them up from school, she was drunk. And so they, they would have multiple times a week near death experiences mm. with like drifting over into the other lane, yeah. then like reactivity from the mom uh, to like, you know, the children's expression of fear. Mm-hmm. And then that would overcorrect into like now we're in the ditch and yeah. all kinds of things of never feeling like I was actually okay. Yeah. Even though my mom, I knew she was hurting. Yeah. But, you know. What was I supposed to do? So to me, when we're when we're understanding like even like the history taking process of right. this, looking so much way broader than just like what is your experience with this drug or this yes. whatever. Yeah. Yes. Ryan recently found a book. It's old. I had never heard of it. Adult grandchildren of alcoholics. Oh. If we're gonna talk about looking oh, broad, well, that's yeah. fascinating. It's, it's so it is fascinating. If you are raised by an adult child of an alcoholic, yeah. the codependence, oh. you know, like strategies that are passed out. <laughs> Yeah. I'm getting uncomfortable over here. <laughs> no, I know. he. It's a thin little book. It's old. It's very uh, dated. Uh, it, it probably needs an update, but it, he really, like, really oh, liked it. Oh, that's so, so real. A-G-C-O-A. Yeah. A-G-C-O-A. Yeah. Yeah, so, no, that's exactly what I am. I had never heard a label for it. Maybe we should both read that and talk about it. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? To be We're going to start a, a new Another. club for the- <laughs> You guys read on your topic. <laughs> I need to read that as well. Do you? Okay. Oh, I just said just... a whole family. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. I mean, like, I think amongst the three of us, I, I already know that all of us have at least one side of the family that oh, yeah. is oh. DSM diagnosable, multiple members yep. with alcoholism at, sure. at a minimum. Oh, yeah. I thought you were just going to say just general DSM. Like they're, <laughs> well, yeah, applicable but to they're, <laughs> they are the book. with that too. They are the book, yeah. Yeah, when that yeah. class came up in graduate school, I was like, I'm good. I know yeah, what it looks I like. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Very familiar. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, with Bridger, when you were talking about the family of just like that, it was just normal. It's so fascinating because my system is geared to like spot addiction or quote unquote i'm air quoting for those of you that can't see that Mm -hmm. um problematic substances in everything but alcohol Mm -hmm. for that same reason that's so interesting yes and like just been conditioned out of your awareness someone's like over drinking or frequent drinking doesn't feel alarming to my body at all Uh but other substances that possibly have less problems with them 
feel alarming mm-hmm. because it's foreign. Mm-hmm. But the natural. Oh, it's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, my family was exactly the opposite. So my oldest uncle was became an alcoholic at 15 and died by the time he was 45 from alcohol. And so on that side of the family, there's a lot of uh, like reactivity to alcohol. (laughs) I'm giggling because it's funny to me now. Um, The uncle that was very addicted to marijuana was like, he's fine. He's like, (laughs) never gets alcohol. (laughs) It's not alcohol. Yeah. I mean, he picked weed. That was like the best decision he ever made because he's never killed anyone. That's exactly right. So this is fine. And so. Yeah, and so then I have a cousin that started struggling uh, with both, and it was fascinating to listen to the family the conversations feud. around, like, if he would just stick with the weed. <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> like, so, and that goes back to that cultural piece. It's yeah. like the meaning that gets made of these different things yeah. and how influential they are in shaping our our own stories and our shame narratives around yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. interesting. And well, no wonder we're all therapists, the, guys. <laughs> the treatment of alcoholism is you just stick to beer. That's how. Oh you yeah, treat yeah, it. yeah. No, that's in my family too. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If he would have just stuck to beer, yeah. If he if, if he could have just laid off the liquor, it would have been fine. It's so real. Yeah. I mean, that really is like when you're in recovery. Like when I'm laughing, that's but pretty it's tough. so true. Yeah. Like, that is recovery. Is, yeah. Okay. I so, just, so I only drink beer now. Yeah. My full honesty is like when you say that, there is a huge part of me that's like, yeah, makes sense. Like totally I, in agreement with yes, that. Like, that's well, why yeah. it's just like, oh. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's not, that's not right. That's not true. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to have to all have a moment of self-reflection about this, apparently. So resourcing with this part of Yeah, who knew that this topic was going <laughs> to bring so much of our own stuff? Oh, huh. well. Yeah. So how about reprocessing some core trauma, you guys? Oh. Yeah. yeah. I recommend it. Do. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm going to bring us back in. Are we ready? Yeah. So we're all sort of aware now that uh, it's strategy. Strategy for what? But then there's that question of uh, the originating events. And I think what is unique about substance abuse is that it's not always the traumas that we would expect. Um, and because of that that entanglement and the what fires together, wires together and all of that, sometimes the core trauma events that we're looking at with substance abuse actually seem rather positive on the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I... I told this story on a recent episode um, about my partner's entanglement with the feeling of companionship, mm-hmm. right? That would still be considered a, a core trauma memory associated with an addiction. And for those of you that haven't heard that one, um, his struggle with cigarettes has to do with the the core memory of being a teenager and feeling this tremendous camaraderie with his best friends. And, you know, there were four of them in the neighborhood and they called themselves the... Hooligans, I think. <laughs> I think it was hooligans. It was like some old man yelled at him and they like adopted it as their moniker because they thought mm. it was cool, right? So that that experience on the surface, it's a nice story. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasant story. Told with laughter, told with smiles, huge smiles, warmth. But that right there is actually the core trauma of mm-hmm. feeling like uh, companionship was dependent upon or entangled with this particular substance and activity. And so when we're moving into looking for those core memories in regards to substance abuse, we kind of have to broaden our understanding and really track the emotional learning mm-hmm. more than what we would traditionally call trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
With a couple of protocols in the substance abuse world, um, Detour and Miller's Feeling State, Melissa, what you're talking about is how Miller's Feeling State protocol approaches yeah. that of how do we you know, separate those two. They became associated directly of camaraderie and connection yeah. comes with this behavior or this substance. Yeah. Therefore, mm -hmm. without the substance, you can't have right. the other. Right. So the unpairing of the two. Um, I do think that still then leaves a nervous system that's thirsty and seeking camaraderie and connection yes. because it's not prevalent and it's not easy to access. Mm -hmm. And so they're sometimes still looking at even beneath where those two got associated. What was the system already set up? What was it searching mm -hmm. for and looking for? And what was it missing and lacking before that? Mm -hmm. And additional maybe um, repair and, and uh, resourcing to do mm -hmm. in there, but first kind of disconnecting those two. Yeah. Deter, on the other hand, looks more at um, targeting triggers. How do we identify what activates that system into desiring that response pattern of that behavior or mm -hmm. that substance mm -hmm. and how do we desensitize that what are they is it the urge to use yeah. the scales the urge level to of use, urge to use mm -hmm. yeah and how do we reduce the urge to use when that stimuli come is present mm -hmm. so both of those are very very powerful of addressing I would perceive them more from a top-down approach, like they are uh, symptom reduction behavior management approaches, but they're very effective. Mm -hmm. yeah. They both speak to the bottom-up work. Yes. Like they both acknowledge the need for the core trauma processing, um, but it's it gives you a great protocol and tools with your clients to use to say like, hey, if we need something that's pretty efficient um, and effective in mm -hmm. helping to manage this, we can utilize this kind of foot in the door and yeah. then come back in and start in that, again, that spiral approach of balancing the two, do some trauma work, go back and desensitize some triggers mm -hmm. and then go do some more trauma work and just kind of teeter-totter. Yeah. Another resource, um, and we've done a uh, episode on this. It's been a long time ago, I think, the two-handed interweave. Mm -hmm. um, I learned that in a training by a woman named Jan Shad, S-C-H-A-A-D, and uh, her organization is EMDR Practice. You can find her at emdrpractice.com. But she teaches the two-handed interweave as a protocol to use when we're dealing with addictions and compulsive behaviors as a bottom-up approach to a consequence analysis, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, the top-down version is like, let me list all the consequences of my bad behavior. Uh, but the two-handed interweave lets us actually feel into the perceived benefits mm -hmm. versus the perceived consequences of that um addiction or behavior. And uh, what I have observed in doing that is that almost invariably, it's a surprise what emerges. Mm -hmm. The um, the feeling behind the why is often not at all what people expected. Mm -hmm. And it's also a way of inviting the body to really start communicating about what is held there affectively in regards to this pattern um, in a really gentle, invitational way. So mm -hmm. if you guys don't know how to do the two-handed interweave, um, we do have a, a full episode on how to do that. And I think a demonstration actually yeah um it's it's kind of old at this point but still good ago. it was a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> um but that's another resource and uh jan shad she uh does consultation and sometimes does training specifically for uh emdr and addictions and i really recommend her work yeah mm -hmm. 
when looking at reprocessing the core trauma, a couple of things that I utilize to orient, like what do we process in that? Like what is the core trauma? It's not always just those big, huge life moments that we think like, oh, well, it must be that. Mm -hmm. Sexual abuse is what's Mm -hmm. leading to your method addiction. It has to be that. Like we want to be looking beyond that and very like intentionally choosing the trauma we're working Mm -hmm. on. And so looking at when did this system first learn that it needed strategy? And Mm -hmm. that takes us back to an episode we recently recorded on like, I can go all the way back to those first attachment relationships. Mm -hmm. But when and how did it learn that it needed strategy? When did it learn that specific strategy Mm -hmm. was going to be super effective? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or that this thing would aid my strategy kind Mm -hmm. of like network Yes, to really help me the way that I needed to. Yeah. Yeah. And then when are some really specific like experiences or felt experiences or moments in time that further perpetuated that, that highlighted it more, insulated it more, um, maybe an attempt to not utilize it that failed or the utilization of it and it was super successful. Like we're being mindful of those types of experiences to become material to target and reprocess. The other area that, especially if somebody has been in long-term addiction, um, targeting the trauma of living the lifestyle of addiction is also really relevant. Because it creates a whole new network of trauma. Yeah. I mean, just the the amount of dissociation that is required, the amount of, um, yeah, just exposure to risk that uh, that lifestyle often creates the dangerous situations that people find themselves in Um, and also the perpetual feeling of being out of control of yourself is Mm -hmm. actually traumatic to to our bodies to feel like i'm doing these things and i don't want to do them and yet i keep doing them all of that produces a lot of alarm in our system and so processing the trauma of living that way and everything that they experience in the midst of that lifestyle um, is is really relevant as well mm-hmm. and is very helpful, um, especially kind of towards the end of treatment when they're beginning to imagine life after and like moving forward and, and where we would start to incorporate some future templating and things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes it's right there where they're that uh, old fear of um, everything that they have been through starts to emerge. And so it can be really helpful to, to track some of that as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts or? I think my kind of takeaway from our conversation, but then also just like what I'm just so reminded of um, as I think about these things in the work that we do. For me, it's understanding how this makes sense, like whatever it is, substances, processes, Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. Somehow it makes sense. And to me, that is always the breadcrumb trail that I'm keen to find. Um, that I'm really trying hard to to help uh, uncover and, and go together on discovering this path mm-hmm. because it does. And I think that that in and of itself is a posture that de-shames or has yeah. the potential to de-shame what it is we're really looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, This is a sometimes a very harrowing journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> On, on actually getting to the core of what was going on when this strategy first revealed itself and when it became so just intoxicating. Mm-hmm. You know, the process of therapy is an invitation into co-regulation and substance abuse and addiction is 
the like rigidity against co-regulation. Yeah. It's like to self-regulate. Self-regulation. Mm -hmm. Yes. I will in, like you know engage in something or ingest something that will assist me in regulating because I can't trust in the co-regulation experience. Okay. Others are not safe. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so there, I feel like just the awareness of that piece as we're approaching, um, if we further perpetuate that message that it's not safe to come to me mm -hmm. and experience and feel and process all of those because you're met with shame or, you know, this like rigid approach of you need to do this. Why didn't you do that? Like yeah. a lack of understanding. It's going to actually perpetuate the issue. Yeah. Yeah. This reminds me of a episode we did on uh, the evidence-based therapist, the mm. article bound to feel bad about oneself yeah. where it's not that it's not that I think you'll think I'm bad. It's that I know that I'm bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to infect you yeah. with my badness. Yes. And so I will self-regulate over here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that just came to mind when you were talking oh. about self-regulation. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that we can, as the therapist, could perpetuate it accidentally, that need to like go over and like regulate yourself. Like, That's right. But also knowing that our invitation into co-regulation may be very terrifying, will be very terrifying. terrifying. It is. And so just like really easing into that and speaking about it explicitly and recognizing mm -hmm. that that journey together is one mm -hmm. that could be like very activating for them, mm -hmm. but also could be the medicine that's needed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a huge conversation to be had that we don't have time for right now around fears and stories around uh, codependency yeah. in connection with people that are struggling with addiction. And I hear therapists resist real relationship and resist attachment under the label of not enabling yeah. and not yeah. falling into codependency. And so it feels important to just clarify, codependency is the use of the other person, not relationship with the other person. Mm -hmm. So as a therapist, well, and for all of us that are humans and have humans in our lives that struggle with addiction, because clearly that's relevant <laughs> for all of us, um, feeling into your own self if you are showing up as an authentic human being or as authentic as you feel safe to with that person that's not you being codependent that's you offering the medicine that they actually need which is a human relationship that has the capacity for co-regulation codependency is using them like a drug to get your needs met and you can feel the difference if there's self-honesty and if we're struggling with that we can be in reflection with somebody else to to help us navigate that but I just, you know, I think it's important that we're mindful of there's some story around enabling addicts that I think is very shaming and problematic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That would be a great future episode. Yeah, a whole separate thing yeah. that we should talk about at some point. <laughs> so in closing, I do have one final question, Bridger. Mm -hmm. Do you make your bed? Do you make your bed? <laughs> you do. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it as quiet as he was. I knew it. Well, here's here's the reality. I I was aware of Bridger's bed making habits, uh, but I'm, I'm not. I think when I'll you get have... you back on another episode. Hey, you already got me at the creamer. Oh, okay? you just wait. That's I'll show you. That's fair. So so here's my self disclosure around bed making. Uh, in the morning, I feel pretty good if the sheet managed to stay on my bed the whole night because oh, wow. I sleep with three dogs and a child <laughs> okay. and a partner and about 19 pillows in the bed. So it's a disaster. And I'm pretty sure my cleaner has lots of questions. <laughs> over the 
in my bed on a regular here. <laughs> exactly. Like often I find shoes in there, but it's just like you have a toddler and yeah. dogs and that's that's my life, but yeah, I don't make my bed. Yeah. Not that anyone is surprised about that. <laughs> it is always a process that begins in my body without my awareness. And that mm. is something that for me like I often like <laughs> this sounds weird but like resist out of like love for my partner mm -hmm. <laughs> honestly because like like you you make the bed less now that you have a partner yes yep uh -huh. yes uh -huh. we, yeah and there's a whole story that we can get into <laughs> but for me yes if it were up to me uh -huh. all the time i would totally and Some i take just deep checking. enjoyment in it <laughs> Why are you just what, what was that question? Just checking. Jamie, let's cut this out. This, is the, this part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't we don't need this bit. <laughs> Someday we'll do a whole episode on human strategy in regards to how you navigate partnering in a bed with another human or really oh, any yeah, other animal. So I thought there. you were gonna say the strategies of a therapist and I was like, why don't you not worry about it? Oh, oh, well that too. Jeez, it wasn't gonna yeah. call us out that badly. Yeah. I'm up for it. Oh, is that a strategy, oh. Jen? You're just super open to like <laughs> critiques and I'll openness. And I'm not afraid of anything. <laughs> Danger. All right, All right let's we wrap this up. Yeah, this. Let's, let's, yeah. that's a wrap. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, yes we'll be uh, covering more special protocols and special populations in the episodes to come. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt, but are learning to recover and grow, living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear. The Evidence-Based Therapist is an educational podcast where we read so you don't have to. On this podcast, we discuss seminal, recent, and relevant research on psychotherapeutics and the embodied relational sciences. How do we know what is evidence-based and how do we use it in our practice? You'll find out on the EBT podcast.